what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, mm. brothers or something like that, okay. and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies right. or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is House Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, Mm -hmm. because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah, you'll be able yep. to get that from Ironswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up north, further north yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep, and get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah, I can get that from Canine Dynamics yep. from in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one... Part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benway. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So I think both there is. Yeah. Uh, I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home Train that dog. Well, you're sipping cafe just, lattes. Just, just gallivanting yeah. all over gallivanting. The <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. We're back in our studio, back in the comfort of being at home instead of trying to uh, mitigate around each other on Zoom where it stifles our speech. We can actually see each other. We can see each other. We can talk to each other. We can say, hmm, without it going (laughs) in the background. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Hey, last week we had a topic that we never got to mm-hmm. because world famous dog trainer and little bitch Liam Webb. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, little bitch Webb, if you don't mind, sir. We should point out, we're not being mean to Liam. It's an in-joke. It's a it term is. of endearment. And it's an Australian nickname yeah. that we've given him and he approves of it and has requested that we 
continue to refer to him as. That's right. He has. It's with Liam's approval and affection. Yeah. And he's an unofficial producer of the show, according to him anyway. So Is he really? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. You are a little bitch, Liam, like squeezing yourself into that. that, (laughs) You you wretched man. He's from the UK, we should point out too. He's a a UK listener. We've got a little canine paradigm fan base over there, which is I think we're growing there, yeah. We are, yeah. So Liam wanted us to talk about suppression, and Mm. we definitely want to do that. But then prior to us starting, we were talking – just talking shit with each other and we're talking about some of the different ways to chain together complex skills, Mm -hmm. which on the NDTF is a really big part of the course, right? Like that's a yeah. Yeah. You have to do a complex skill. And there's category A and category B. So you can do two minimalistic complex skills or you can do a category A one, which is kind of like something that you would see an assistance dog do. So you've got to put some time and thought into the process of doing it. Is there a definition they give on what a complex skill is? Complex skill is anything that you would generally see a backward or forward chain built into it. So mm-hmm. something that is really non-binary dog work. And I know Bart calls those sort of things like monkey drills. Mm-hmm. Monkey drills in Bart Bellin terminology is, you know, like your normal sit drops and stays. And it might involve some of that in the componentry, but a complex skill is something that by definition, I think the way that Boyd came up with it when he originally talking about it in the early days is something that you wouldn't expect a dog to do for itself or by itself without the intervention of human, like creating something that was complicated and, like I said, involving like a chain network in it somewhere yeah. where there was multiple skills that were brought on that has no biological functional service to the dog. Yeah. And so like where one command potentially triggers a sequence of right. behaviours yeah. that have been taught individually or altogether or whatever, right? You know, the best way that I've learned to describe that to people, and I know we're sort of going to get into the meat of this conversation, but for anybody who's ever used Photoshop before, I may have mentioned this on the show, but it is very, anybody who's done this, for people who who have never used Photoshop, this is only going to complicate things further. But for people who have, and a lot of people have, because when I usually ask people, if you ever played with it? If I've got a room of 12 people, 10 people will put their hand up. So when you're playing with Photoshop and you're, let's say, for example, you're trying to create a picture, you've got layers. So you can move all these layers around on top of each other. So in the old days, when we used to have projectors, you'd have like these transparencies that you'd put down. So Mm. people might have like a stack of 10 transparencies on top of each other and they take one off and take one off or they've add to the transparencies. Mm -hmm. So the teacher in the room would put it, you know, like a transparency on top of a transparency to show the picture with a different order that's old school that's old school old overhead projector that's i'm old yeah right? no so, I, I, that was around when i was at school that yeah. was a that was very common that overhead projector yeah before computers really made their way into classrooms yeah. and we were able to do sort of things like that but that's what photoshop effectively does it allows you to play with these transparencies or layers because they kind of are they're transparent and it's only one image like occupying that layer and you can enlarge it you can move it you can move it all around effectively that's what shaping and changing is because each layer represents a part of a shaped sequence. And then when you're stacking them on top of each other and building your ultimate picture, eventually what you're going to do is use what's called a merge function where Mm -hmm. everything gets merged into one. Now, where people really suffer with the whole shaping and chaining practice is I use cues. They're basically what I would call a limited cue. 
Okay, so it's a time-limited queue. And then people get really fucked up in the head over that. Like they say, but you're saying this during that time. And I said, yeah, but I'm going to make that queue extinct. It's going to be irrelevant over time because Mm -hmm. there's no need to use it anymore because once I'm ready to merge, I'm calling it instead of, you know, like grass, sun, tree, children, clouds, birds, squirrel, which all have their own name for that layer – once I've merged it, I can call it picnic. Mm-hmm. And that's the one word. So I don't need to say to you, oh, there's a there's clouds, a squirrel, a bird. You can see it all in there. Mm-hmm. Like it all represents everything that I was trying to build and construct. And along the way, along the journey of adding those things in, you can say, well, this is necessary to complete the picture. Without having that in there, it won't tell my story right. Mm-hmm. The dog knows how to do this when you explain that journey quite well because all they're doing is trying to get to the end result. Of course, they're getting their dopamine along the way. So just hold on. Give an example of a complex skill that would be taught on the NDTF course. There's two that they usually do is getting an item out of a fridge or a cupboard Mm -hmm. or putting an item into a basket and then getting the dog to bring the basket back to you. So they're generally the ones that most students will go to. So I just wanted to sort of frame that because we're going into the more technical analysis of how to teach it, but we haven't explained quite what it is. So it's a a sequence of events given one cue, right? And then the dog will do multiple things that you could teach individually or we'll go on to talk about the ways that you can teach it. It's a a single cue at the finished product is a single cue that sets in motion a chain of behaviors. Mm -hmm. Whereas normally when you are, you know, teaching like most dog training, whether it's sports stuff or just basic, you know, pet obedience, whatever is usually one one command, one action. That's right. I tell the dog to sit, he sits and he stays there until I tell him something else. Tell him to stand, he stands. Whereas a complex skill would be, get me the beer from the fridge and the dog goes to the fridge. He opens the fridge. He picks up the beer. He then closes the fridge. Then he delivers it. And right. That's multiple behaviors multiple with things. one cue. But in the dog's mind, it becomes one action in the end, even yeah. though it involves, you know, multiple moving parts. In the last episode we talked about, and this is again, another part of the analogy that we use when we're trying to explain this is you give the dog a square and the dog is automatically trying to work out how do I turn this into a circle? Mm-hmm. Because, Fundamentally, it goes along the way of give a lazy person a job and they'll show you how to cut it in half. Mm -hmm. And that's what a dog is trying to work out how to do is how do I cut as much off this as I possibly can and still get to the end result? Mm -hmm. That used to really frustrate me in the early days because I used to think, no, that's not the way I want to do it. I want to go through these complicated sequences to do it. But the dog would still achieve the same result by cutting through some of the red tape. When I learned to embrace that, I thought, that's fucking brilliant. Mm. That's actually really clever of the dog to work how to do that. But it's not because the dog is sitting there becoming analytic and thinking, I need to sit down and have a strategy meeting on how to do this. The dog is basically just saying, I just want to uncomplicate my life and get to this end as as best as I possibly can. Your job is to keep the dog true to the function of the exercise. The dog's job is to enjoy the journey but then get to the end and get the reward. Mm -hmm. I think it's a merger of the two of them and understanding my dog is clever enough to route off the edges and start making this square more circle-like. My job is just to make sure that there's no corruption in that. And if he is going to turn it into a circle, that's fine. I've just got to make sure it doesn't turn into a triangle at the end of it and then completely fuck up the origins of the exercise. And then the dog is looking at me with confusion and I'm confused because I've confused the dog. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do, and this is why pulling apart the chain and examining the the working parts within it. We've got to make sure that the integrity of each shaped exercise remains intact. So when you are ready to bind it, the chain doesn't look any different. 
again, using another physical descriptor, when I'm holding up a correction chain, when I show it to people, I said, you don't look at this and say, this is 52 links and two O-rings. You call it a correction chain. Yeah. But if you look at the links, they're perfectly bound. Mm. They all do their job. They move and swivel the way they are supposed to. And the form and function of this chain is intricate and beautiful, but it's simplistic now. Mm-hmm. Like we've simplified it and we don't have to sit there and agonize over where it came from, how it came to be, who created the links. Nobody thinks about that. Nobody gives a fuck about that. And neither does the dog eventually when it learns how to bind everything because you've done such a beautiful practice of creating the individual mechanisms of the shaped criteria and then teaching the dog, that's great, and that's great, and now it's ready to bind. You can bind them beautifully. And depending on the working order of how you can do it, sometimes you can't help but forward chain because there's no way to explain the answer. So stop, because you're just using terms that we need to explain. Okay. There'll be a lot of people that don't understand We've, that. Uh, we have before. I think we have a Patreon episode that have. covers this kind of stuff. Okay. I think we've explained that in a Patreon episode uh, mm. several years ago when we used to do them podcast ones instead of the video ones. That's true. Yeah, um, that's true. So- Back chaining and forward chaining. Yep. Some people may not understand those terms. Back chaining is to teach a complex series of behaviors by yep. starting at the end. Last exercise first. Yeah. And so the very best example we use in this is the retrieve. Most people yep. teach the retrieve via a back chain where we just show the dog, hey, here's this item. Let's yep. call it a dumbbell. And you hold this sitting in front of me and that is rewardable, right? Yep. And then- you like when you put enough value into that and you get that happening the way that you want, then when you throw the dumbbell, the dog knows, well, there's no value in the dumbbell being out there, but if I go and get it and bring it back to you, then that has a value that's rewardable. And yep. so you, all you actually need to teach is the last bit and the dog figures out the rest for himself yep. uh, because he just knows I need to get to the end. I think one of the best things about back chaining is that like, if there's any elements of the dog using dog skills, I think that's when the back chaining is usually the best. I prefer back chaining a lot of the time. And we'll most people do why. and most dogs do. Okay. It's more beneficial and it considerably halves time. Yeah. But there are just exercises that you, you, you just, just can't. can't back chain it. If you want to see forward chaining, a good example of forward chaining is me teaching Ladybug to do dancing bear. Yeah. Because there's no way you can back chain that. Yeah, you just you can't, can't get to the end first. Right. She has to learn everything in a forward sequence. Yeah. So then forward chaining is then that where you do the opposite, where you say like, here's the first bit, do that. And then through frustration or non-reinforcement or, you know, luring a little bit more. Yeah. There's many ways to progress the behavior just a little bit, yep. but you go, okay, now there's a new standard that has to be met and you won't be reinforced until you get to that bit. And yep. then progressively get until the end picture behavior that you want is there. Mm. Right. So that's back chaining and forward chaining. Mm-hmm. Carry on, sir. Where did I get to? That's a great question. <laughs> so so that's back chaining and forward chaining. Yep. And I think that knowing that and being able to decide when you have a complex skill to teach that the pros and cons of each, I think, mm. can be very important. On the NDTF course with the complex skills, people can choose their own, right? Yeah, like, they can choose it. They have a list of – I think there's probably a list of – 10 exercises in each group. So they can look through, they can read the criteria of what's expected. And primarily the way that in New South Wales, the way that Kana and I describe it, I'm sure they do the same in Queensland and and Victoria the same way as well, is analyze what your dog is capable of. Okay, so do a full assessment. Have a look at what your dog is physically and biologically and using its drives and motivation. What could your dog do out of this list? Mm. So basically strike a pen through everything that you know that your dog can't do. Let me just jump back for a second. There's a basic skill that we require the dogs to do when we're teaching people how to charge a clicker and how to understand Pavlovian conditioning. 
So there's two skills that they have to do as part of the end assessment. They either have to teach the dog to retrieve a dumbbell and it's just basic, basic retrieval. So it doesn't have to be super elaborate or anything like that. It just teaches the dog how to do it. Most of these dogs that they're doing it with are, are rescue dogs that we get from rescue centers. Yeah, to they're come just and, rando dogs. Rando they're dogs. Performance. They're not breaking their dog. People who are worried about teaching it for competition, you know, there is more elaborate asks in competition work. There has to be a very formal way of doing this exercise where this is more informal. It still involves the working parts and the machinery and the basics of understanding and the knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. But we're teaching the dog to either retrieve a dumbbell. They've got seven or eight days to do this, so not a lot of time, or to touch a press light with their nose or their paw. Sounds quite basic, right? For some of the dogs, it's easy peasy. They do it, no problems. Okay, so one, if you've got a a motivated dog and a dog that's socially sound, the dog will literally get straight to work within a couple of days. Once they've got acquisition with the clicker, bang, the dog's working through the skills. What I usually do to complicate it further is just say to the people, instead of getting a nose poked, if you've got a very motivated dog, go for a paw poke. It ups the challenge for you a little bit because some dogs will walk out there and by day three, they're poking it with their nose already. Mm-hmm. So I'll just say to them, frustrate the dog, shift it onto the paw rather than using the nose. Some students will insist on wanting to do a dumbbell retrieve with a dog that's got no motivational desire to pick up anything, mm-hmm. you know, and then they'll get to day six of eight and they're bawling their eyes out. Now, I have a big sermon about this prior to us getting out on the field. I say to him, this is why it's so important to do assessments on finding out what your dog is fundamentally able to do. Mm. And if you've got a dog that you pull out of the kennels and you're, you know, like you throw a stick on the ground, the dog wants to pick it up and play with it, or, you know, it's picking up random things. I said, that's a good candidate for doing this skill. Go for it because you've got a dog that is going to give it to you in the time. And I know we can talk about unforced force fetches and and a lot of other examples that you've done in Patreon and beyond. It's a very good way that you can work with some dogs that don't even show some of these skills, but it still helps to have it in the bank. Mm -hmm. I've known people whose dogs almost opposed to retrieving anything that they've got the dog retrieving. But when you look at it, it's not flashy. You can make it as best as you possibly could. But for a dog that loves doing that, the advantages are so high compared to anything else. My ask and my expectation for the student and just for their benefit is to explain to them, think about this before you get out there, like analyze what your dog is competent in and then choose an appropriate skill for it. You've only got seven days, Mm. you know, eight in total, but one of those days is definitely going to be taken up with acquisition training, Mm. you know, like getting the dog to understand that it might be two days. Some of the dogs need two days to get used to what the clicker is. By acquisition, you mean just even developing a marker. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We use the term acquisition to understanding how to have a Pavlovian response to the clicker or the word yes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of time soaked up in that. And then you've got to work on the skill, but they're not only working on that skill. They're also developing themselves in learning class instruction and to privately instruct. There's a lot on a student in that time. They've only got one week to do it. First week is a practice round. Second week is business week. Generally, all the students ace it. You know, they do really well in it. But in the earlier times where I was doing it, I wasn't actually preparing them with that sermon at the start. So I kind of felt that was causing problems with them because I was just saying, well, you choose what you want to do. Now I I say to them, you can still choose and the choice is yours. And I've had students that regardless of me getting up there and having the sermon, they'll still go out and do something arbitrary and go out and select a retrieval-based exercise with a dog that has no place doing a retrieval-based exercise. Mm -hmm. And I don't interfere with the student's want or desire to do this. This is adult education. I just say to them, are you certain about your choice? And they'll go, I'd like to try. And I'll say, well, 
that's fine. I'm not going to stand in your way. Here are some difficulties that I could see. So I explain what and how I would go about it and why I would possibly choose differently. But I said, at the end of the day, this is your course and it's entirely up to you. Usually they'll come around to it and say, I think I'll change to the light. Dopamine's a funny thing, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's like Dave Chappelle's playing Rick James. He's talking about how he never punched Charlie Murphy in the head. And he goes, yeah, I slapped him upside the head straight after he just said that. And he goes, cocaine's a hell of a drug. Cocaine's a hell of a drug, right? Or dopamine's a hell of a drug because it's a funny one. Like I've not – I don't instruct on NDTF courses, but on other courses that I've – when I was in the army and stuff that you instruct on – there's a module, you got to provide this and people decide they're going to go over the top. Yeah. And I've said to people before, you know, I'm either going to put a C for competent or a NYC for not yet competent. You're either are or you are not. This is binary. I'm not going to put in my notes here. I'm not going to say that you did something elaborate. You're either going to demonstrate the skill or you're not. Yeah. And it's up to you if you want to do something fucking crazy and take a shot at the title for the dopamine rush that will come of it. That's cool. You can. But know that the reward at the end will be the same, yep. right? Like you're getting the same reinforcer, a competent or a not yet competent. That's what's happening. Mm. And if you want to chase the risk of that NYC because you go for something elaborate, good for you. But yep. you just be aware you're a dopamine addict and that's what's driving that. Well, this goes in light with exactly the topic that you brought up last week, the minimum effective dose. Yeah. As soon as I heard you say that and I was in the editing room and I'm sitting down listening at night, I heard you say it again. I thought... Perfect name for the episode. Yeah. And I'm going to steal that and I'm going to use that in NDTF, future NDTF. Just a dollar per time, please. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Fuck you. It's a perfect payable dollar because it's a very good saying and it summarizes exactly the old saying for university people was a P is a pass. Mm. That said to students, don't agonize over something that unless you need those high marks to get into medical school because they're taking people in the nineties or whatever, why would you put yourself through the agony of trying to get, you know, 99.9% or a hundred percent out of a test when you can just get the degree and you'll still get the job anyway. But NDTF, like you're not scoring them, right? Like it's a pass or fail. It's it's same thing. It's, yeah. it's competent or not yet competent. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's what I try and tell the student, like the arguments avoid, if they're saying we don't do this at our club or we don't do this. And I said, yeah, but this is a markable summary. Yeah. If I tell you to hold a lead a certain way, it's an NDTF way that all students can do it collectively. And then when you go out and you want to put the lead in your left hand instead of your right hand, go for gold. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. But all I'm primarily saying to you in this course now is this is the requirements. This is the marking criteria. So I'm showing you a practical and functional way of doing something that all of you can do the same sort of thing. And then as soon as you leave, you walk out that door with your pass. Whatever you do is whatever you do. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you think about the skills development and whatever you gain from the course that will help make you a better trainer. But if you have preferences, you're an adult, you're Mm -hmm. in charge of your own life. And as long as it's improving your standards and the standards of your students and your staff and whoever that you're impacting in any way, shape or form, as long as it's raising their standards as well, who cares? I care about that. That's all I care about. And this is the reason why you and I have encouraged people to pursue further knowledge is to raise their standards, to raise um, raise the bar, raise their awareness of what they could be doing better. Because that's a part of dopamine as well. That's mm. a part of feeling good about the journey is because there is no end to it. Anybody who reaches the end of something, it's like people who buy video games, you know, once they get to the end of that video game, they're looking for a new game to buy. Mm. 
which is the hope of the video game companies because they want you to start the dopamine journey on something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, clever. So the reason we wanted to go into this sort of complex skills Mm. and talking about backwards and versus forward chaining is because there's pros and cons to each. Yes. And things can go wrong within backwards and forwards chains and the way that you might fix them would be different. Mm. So take, for example, a backwards chain. One of the risks, and maybe we just stick with the retrieve as an example, right? Yeah. Because it relates to- Well, you've got an example that you yeah. and I were talking about, and I think that might be a good example on- So one of the issues of backwards chaining anything is that if you show the dog the end point and then leave him to figure out the path to get there with the retrieve, all you have to do is hold this right in front of me. And then when I throw it, you go get it and bring it back because holding it in front of me is reinforceable, yeah. right? The problem can be that- what we're kind of hoping that the dog is the finds the most efficient way to do that, right? Because he's just interested in getting to the end and he wants to do it in the, with the minimum effective dose. He just wants to go and get it and bring it back. And that's what we're kind of hoping happens. But what can happen along the way is that the dog can develop superstitious behaviors within the chain that you never wanted there, but he did by accident or on purpose. And we, because he completed the behavior, then we have to pay him. Imagine in that example that the dog is going for the first time or you know, early on in the learning phase, you throw the dumbbell, and the dog's got to go out and get it. And on his way out, he trips over, right? And mate does like a stumble. And then he still completes the behavior and comes back and you pay. It's an extreme example, but the dog can then go, oh, part of that reinforceable sequence is mm. that trip along the way. And then you might end up with a dog that does like a little funky little maneuver along the way as he goes because he thinks that that was part of what happened there. It's a superstition that's built that's into That's a superstitious it. behavior. Mm. There's really cool examples of superstitious behaviors and like the very old videos, and I can't remember where I saw them, but there's almost certainly on YouTube of the Braylons and their pigeon machine things, mm. right? So they used to have these kind of carnival things and what it was is it's a pigeon in a, a glass box and the command to enact a long chain of behaviours that was all free-shaped and taught very impressively was someone putting in money into the, the machine, right? You put in your quarter And that is the trigger. That is the command to the pigeon to begin a sequence of behaviors, which involves then like picking up your quarter and taking it around. And and that's how they made their money because people would put in the money to watch the pigeon do whatever it did with it. But the pigeon only has like a, can only work for a certain period of time before they have to change him out because he's doing it for food. He's doing it for positive reinforcement. Yeah. Once satiation takes place, yeah, it won't work. That's right. Positive reinforcement always, you know, you hit that point of satiation, especially in training with food. And so Mm. that pigeon is no longer going to complete the task because he does, he's no longer motivated. Mm. And they have some videos online. It's definitely, I'll see if I can find them and post them, but, they change out the pigeon and even though the end point is the same, the pigeon picks up the quarter and he takes it and he puts it in the money box and he goes through this sort of complex series of things that he does with it. No two pigeons would ever do it exactly the same Mm. because it was a back chained exercise, right? So all that mattered to the pigeon was that I get that coin into that pile at the end, right? And there was a series of obstacles that the pigeon had to negotiate along the way. And because of the, you know, the variances that can happen in the way that, you know, just they, they make different decisions, they offer different behaviors in the free shaping process of getting that done. They might have done something that they thought was important, but not. In the video that I watched, one of the pigeons, there's a little elevator ride. Like they, it walks to this little platform and pulls a string and that lifts the platform up and then they go to the next thing and he moves along. 
And on one of the pigeons dances while he's on the platform. Like he does this weird little <laughs> jig. Yep. And I think they explained it in there. At one point, the platform got sticky and he kind of kicked it off and that's what made it move. And so he was convinced that was a- He, was, a, he became the dancing bear. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. Like he mm. got convinced that that was a necessary part of the sequence of behaviors. Yep. And I think that's a really good example of superstitious behaviors that can happen within a back chain event yep. in that the more complex it gets, the more variance that the dog can come up with in solving the puzzle, right? Because you've left him to solve it with his own devices. All that matters to you is that he gets to the end. Mm. And if you're reinforcing, you'll be reinforcing because he got to the end. And there's risks in not re- like letting him get to the end and not reinforcing is risky, right? Yep. Because then the whole thing can, depending on where you are in your learning phase, but the whole thing can potentially fall apart. So if the dog does something peculiar along the way, but then recovers and gets to the end, then that can become a superstitious behavior. Exactly like the pigeon who had to kick the little platform to get it to move and then thought he was meant to do that and ended up doing a weird little dance on it. That's the same thing. He then goes, oh, well, that's a necessary part of it. Getting rid of superstitious behaviors can be really tricky to do. Sometimes it's super easy and other times it can be really complex and it can depend on like how attached the dog is to that behavior versus how important he thinks it is in the overall picture of what's happening there. Mm. Right. A good example of, that I've had you know, challenges with, and I've talked about it a lot is barking and healing, right? Like my dog's a barky dog. And there was a period in time where I'm positive. If you asked him what's healing and he would say, Oh, I meant to bark while I do that. Right. And then it becomes very, not impossible, but tricky to isolate that bark and communicate to him like, Hey, that's not allowed. But at the same time, he's doing like 90% of him is doing exactly what I want him to do. And 10% of him is doing what I don't want him to do. Mm. It can be very difficult to communicate to him to drop that 10%. And so in a, like our retrieving example, you imagine that the dog drops the item. You're going to have to address that because if you consistently allow that to happen, or sometimes even if you let it happen once, depending on you know the, the dog's where he's at in the learning phase and what you're reinforcing with, and there could be lots of variables that would contribute to this. Yeah. But if that dog drops the item one time, picks it up without consequence and brings it back to you and you still reinforce, he could potentially do that all the time. Mm. The, the, the potential exists that he could then go, right, that's part of it. It would be bad for the dog to think I'm allowed to do that, which is certainly what would happen if you reinforce. If he picks up the dumbbell, he's walking along, it drops out of his mouth, and then he picks it up again and brings it to you and you reinforce. At the minimum, the dog thinks that's allowed, right? And so will not necessarily take efforts to avoid it, even if it happened by accident, right? He might not take efforts to avoid it in the future. Why is that important? Well, you know, in the dumbbell retrieve specifically, they're meant to clamp it and hold it firm so that they don't chew it or anything like that. And the reason that it would fall out of his mouth is because he's not holding it tight enough, right? So at the minimum, he thinks he's allowed. What would be the worst is that he thinks he's meant to, Mm. right? And once he thinks he's meant to, now you're in all sorts of trouble because you're going to have to find a way to get rid of that. And getting rid of that is interesting, right? Because there's a couple of different ways you can do it. And it would depend on, there's probably two very obvious ways to do it. And some people would choose one over the other just based purely on the way that they train. One way would be non-reinforcement, right? Mm. The dog drops it and you go, well, that's it. I'm not going to allow you to complete the rest of the behavior. We're going to reset. We're going to go back to the start. And that would work, right? For the most part, that would definitely work. And that's why sometimes you see, like for people who have never taught a retrieve like this before, and again, we're just using the retrieve as an example that you can apply this template to any myriad of behaviors that you're going to teach. 
But that's why you see sometimes there's like a dumbbell type thing. It's just a pipe with a string attached to it. So if the dog isn't holding it correctly and it falls, or you could even try and pull it out of the dog's mouth, you can have a helper to the side that if the dog's not holding it well or he falls, he pulls that away and it gets taken from the you dog. Can't complete the exercise. Can't complete you can't the get exercise. Rewarded. Yeah. So that in that instance, it's negative punishment because you're taking away the ability to complete the exercise and completing the exercise. It leads to reinforcement, so it by proxy is reinforcement, yep. right? Completing the exercise is like the secondary reinforcer. It, the real reinforcer can't happen without it predicting it, right? Yep. So by pulling the dumbbell out of the dog's mouth or if he drops it and no longer giving him access to it, you just pick it up. It could be as simple as that. Mm. That will work because then the dog goes, shit, because of that event, I couldn't get to the end of the sequence and I therefore couldn't get reinforced. I need to not do that again. It is punishment by its very definition because it's going to reduce the frequency and likelihood of that specific thing happening again, Yep. right? So that would be one way to do it, and that fucking works. There's mm. no doubt that that works. The other way would be that you could use negative reinforcement to pick up the dumbbell again. If you've taught the initial hold of the dumbbell to have a negative reinforcement component, that's what's critical, right? And, and I think that most people who – you know, that's what gets overlooked mm. is that the dog, they, they teach it purely positive and, you know, because it's so easy to do that. You can teach a like that unforced fetch, right? So it's just like free shaping the dog holding a dumbbell. Any dog can learn that very quickly. Yep. But then the problem is during that retrieve, if the dog drops it, if that's the first time you're thinking that you're going to use negative reinforcement and compel the dog at that moment to pick it up, that is fucking unlikely to work. Yeah. Because they don't understand it. Yeah, it's mm. just going to be a pressure that is happening within the dog's already. Yeah, it has no relationship with it. Yeah, it's mm. already like he's already, mind's already very focused elsewhere mm. on what he's doing. And now suddenly he's using pressure, especially if that's like an electric pressure at that yep. point, because the, the dog has no idea that he can turn off that pressure via that action because we haven't taught him that. So if you ever wanted to use negative reinforcement to then pick up the dumbbell again it, at distance, you need to have taught that as a learning phase mm. and you could use it. You could go like old school proper force fetch if that's how you wanted to do it. Like you could actually com use compulsion to get that hold initially. Yep. Or you could do like what I much prefer to do is I teach it positive to start and then I layer that pressure over the top. So that's kind of a tricky thing as well because that pressure has to be, it gets complex at this point because now we're going to use- skill. <laughs> exactly right funny that so imagine the same picture my dog's gonna hold the dumbbell right there in front of me and he already knows how to do it and mm. the, it could be on command or it could be just contextual that i hold it right there in front of him and somehow i have to lay a negative reinforcement into that behavior that he already knows this is where the low level e-collar kind of stuff becomes interesting and kind of necessary because negative reinforcement has to at the minimum be annoying right? Some people, and certainly I felt like this a long time ago. That's why I was so opposed to negative reinforcement was that like, it's the devil's quadrant because it, ha it has to be straight aversive, right? Like, and it has to be aversive. Like that word aversive can, but like aversive can be annoying. Like, Oh, I want to turn that off. I'm aware of it and I want to turn it off versus like, I'm on fire and I'll die if I don't. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that people sort of think negative reinforcement has to be that end, right? Like it's, I'm on fire and I'll die if I don't like that hardcore old school compulsion, which it just doesn't need to be. In fact, often shouldn't be, mm. but finding a level, whether you're going to use a mechanical tool or an electric collar, whatever, where the dog is aware of it, wants it to stop but it doesn't alter his behavior because you've taught 
holding the dumbbell or whatever it is you're holding with positive reinforcement. And the reason he's going to do it is because he wants the the paycheck at the end. Mm. You need to, prior to him doing it, apply a level of pressure that he's aware of and wants to stop. But the level of that pressure has to be less than his desire to complete a behavior he already knows and is doing so for positive reinforcement. And that's the function of the low-level e-collar stuff, right? Where the dog goes, shit, I feel that. I don't really care. I'd rather not, but it's not something that I'm going to start immediately searching for the behavior that would turn that off, right? And then he does the behavior in that moment, what you're essentially hoping for, well, not hoping for, it's what you have to calculate and make sure happens, is that the dog goes, I feel that. It's annoying. I would rather it stop, but I'm just going to put up with it for now because I want to complete this task that the boss has offered in order to get the paycheck. Mm. And then he does that and then it stops and he goes, oh shit, it was the same thing. Yeah. Right? And that's, I think, the step that a lot of people either don't get, don't do, or maybe don't get quite right. Right. Because having done that and created a learning phase over that, where the dog back chains negative reinforcement as well as positive reinforcement into the back chain means that if anything goes wrong within that back chain, I can now use negative reinforcement, especially if I've done it with an electric collar in front of me, Mm. I can now use that at distance and the dog know what to do with it. So in our one no tools method, we would then say to the dog, like, nah, you dropped it. I'm not going to allow you to complete this sequence of events. Mm -hmm. And we would be in that time using like a non-reinforcing marker and we have to reset and go back. The other, as I've just described, would be to use negative reinforcement to make the dog get the right thing done, even though he was probably already going to do it anyway. And what we're relying on that with that negative reinforcement is the fact that the dog knows how to escape it and in future will avoid it, Mm. right? So if you're a person that doesn't want to use tools, you're stuck on the non-reinforcing marker. And if you're a, a person who is okay with using tools, you've got the choice, right? Because now you can say, when it goes down, you can say, well, if I have the ability to use the tools because I've layered that in, which one of these is going to be more effective, right? And the reason it might be more effective could be really interesting is because the giving the non-reinforcing marker may be more effective because it's more stressful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas using the tools of compulsion- How dare you, sir? Will also be effective, but it will be less stressful on the dog because of the level of guidance that he's being given. And you know, my source on that is when we go back to Esther Schulk's study on the effects of the quitting signal, prong collar and e-collar on, yep. on high-drive dogs. And that fits into that model perfectly. We're bu- it's all going to work. It's like all those techniques are absolutely going to work. Mm. But the reason when people say, oh, well, I don't want to use the tools because my method is better, I'd argue it potentially is for a couple of reasons in different circumstances. We can talk about why there would be different circumstances. But the reason it works is because that circumstance is more stressful for the dog. Being not allowed to complete the behavior and being forced to reset is going to cause a cortisol spike in the dog. Yeah. It's also probably going to cause like a dopamine spike as well because he wants to get to like he's it's the pursuit of the reinforcer, not getting the reinforcer. Mm. So you're going to get some positives and I'm fine with causing like a bit of stress on the dog, like that that cortisol because he got it wrong and he's going to try and not get it wrong next you time. You can't avoid it. You can't exactly. avoid it. And trying to play that juggling game with what's going on in the dog's head. You know, of course, we're all in the business of trying to minimize that, but 
how do you know? Yeah. Unless you've got a scientist with you that's swabbing the dog throughout the duration of the exercise. Like Sapolsky talks about this at length. Huberman talks about it at length. Anybody who's involved in neurosciences understands that you cannot stop stresses and you shouldn't. Yeah. You shouldn't stop stresses. What you should be stopping is a life in excess of anything. That's the problem. But the duration of stress during exercises, it's necessary because without that, you're setting the dog up for like a psychological fail. Mm. We're dealing with what we can see, like the physiological world. But what's going on inside the dog's head, unless we can test it, we don't know. The question remains, for someone like me, and I don't mean like me specifically, I mean like the proverbial me, someone who understands this and trains similarly to what I do, right? Yep. Tens of thousands of the me. Why would I choose one over the other? There's got to be a reason, right? Like I have to come to a point where I choose one over the other. And for me, the reason is if I ever need to be able to make it happen now, mm-hmm. then I need to go with the negative reinforcement model Yep. because I can totally acknowledge that if my dog drops it, giving that non-reinforcing there, the punishment and saying, no, nah, you're not, I'm not allowing you to complete this behavior. I'm bringing you back to the start. But that means you've got to start on the I have to restart. Route. You've got to start with that. Training. Yeah. But I might even do both. I might do both for a little while. Right. Yeah. I might start with that positive part and do it exactly that way. And then bring in the pressure later because I want the effect of both. I, yeah. I want the best of both worlds. Yeah. But the reason I would do that is because I know that will work. But the problem I have is in future, if, and when the dog drops it, he could just pick it up or he may not know how to recover from there. Mm. Now in a retrieve, he's going to remember how to pick it up because that's part of the back chain, right? Yeah. But in other more complex skills, what can happen is when, if you are always rescuing the dog from when he makes a mistake, you're then relying on the practice being perfect where Mm. you're making sure, no, you made a mistake. We go back to the start and that's cool. That's great. That's in fact, you know, a very effective way to train and and you probably should for a while. Mm. Right. But I think, before I can call a dog finished, I need him to make mistakes. And then the pressure that I'll give to the dog via the e-collar or whatever it is, whatever tool that I'm giving will be a known signal. And essentially what I'm doing in that moment is giving the dog advice. I'm yep. giving the dog the command like, hey, man, I know the way out of this. I can show you. And then he knows how to solve the problem. Mm. So for me personally, I'll absolutely use both. I totally, absolutely will use both. For the, with a dog in the learning phase to start with, if he gets it wrong, I'll reset him and bring him back. And I, I will intentionally later make sure that he does get it wrong when he understands the pressure and its relationship to the behavior so that I can then set him on the right path so that if and when I need that thing to happen for realsies and he gets lost – we have the tools of communication to be able to communicate to him like, hey, man, this is what I need from you right now, right? Everybody trains their dog in their, their own way. But I think the conversation around why you would do one over the other is not as simple as I use tools or I don't, you know? Like mm. I think that it's, it's- Well, it is for people who don't want to use tools. Yeah, but That's if a you, simple conversation because they go, I'm not using tools. Yeah, I'm, and I'm that's fine. B. That's fine. But yep. for people who, like us, just because you are a tool- user if you have to you don't have to do it and in fact maybe it in the early phase like why not get both that's Mm. what i'm saying here is like why not use that first method noting that it has some very powerful strengths and that it is a more aversive experience to the dog that's something to keep in mind like it's a more aversive experience to be stopped to be allowed to complete the behavior than it is to use compulsion to complete the behavior your Mm. dog is going to be happier with the compulsion than he is with the not being allowed to complete it. So I'm going to do that on purpose because I'm like, Hey man, like I want this to be a significant learning event for mm. you. 
But because I then am okay with using the tools, I'm going to finish the behavior later where I'm going to say to the dog, like, hey, if you get lost at distance and you know, silently or you know, in a way that you're going to understand, I can help you get it right, right? But, you know, that's the role of any good mentor or teacher. If you watch a teacher or a tutor working with a student, you know, let's say they're struggling with math, for example, and they're sitting there. They'll walk over and say, show me your work. Yeah. You know, like, what are you doing? And the student will say, oh, you know, like, I mean, we have the ability to communicate with each other. And we'll say, oh, I'm stuck here. I can't find my way out of it. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, okay, well, rather than give them the answer, they'll try and massage it through with them. And it, it effectively, this is what we're trying to do with the dog as well. Yeah. It's not just hand them the answer completely all the time, but try and get them to understand holistically. Like, you can try something else. There are a couple of outs on this. Any tutor that I've ever worked with or any mentor that I've ever worked with won't just come up and hand me the fish. You know, what they'll do is they'll spend time teaching me to fish. And that's important about our journey in dog training as well is that we, you know, especially when we're talking about this shaping and training concept, a large part of the problem, what I see is when people have a breakdown in this is that somewhere along the line, they've skipped the integrity of a very integral part of the chain. Mm -hmm. So a shaping criteria, they've glossed over that and thinking that doesn't matter. Well, in the physical realm of things, a chain breaks when the weakest link gives away. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens in shaping and chaining. Mm -hmm. So if you have fundamentally created a weak link, that's where the chain will explode right there and then. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about all of these, the importance of, of not perfecting them, but getting them right having the dog understand the integrity of them. And that's when you can start to bind them. Like anytime I'm talking to anybody, I'm coaching through this, you've just done a brilliant example of why you could use or avoid pressure. But we also have to understand integrity of anything that we're doing. And again, last week's episode, we talked about not having to pursue perfection. It's not saying that you have to make this perfect, but you do have to make it good enough that if I was saying to a person, I could give you the double thumbs up and saying, I absolutely understand it. Mm. I'm ready to move on. Fine. There are ways in coaching and mentoring that we can assess this. We can look at the competency of the dog and we can say he does understand it. Like the dog is doing it 9.5 times out of 10 perfectly. And you're right. We don't want to develop those little superstitious behaviors along the way. Another way to look at that, when I was listening to you talking about it before, other ways that I've done it, which you have to be careful with this, and this does rely on some time in the saddle and experience, is separating that part from the chain and going back to that shaped increment and working on that. So Mm. you do have to break the chain at that point in time, which in some people's languages, that's complete taboo. You know, I mean, Fleetwood Mac sang a song about that saying, and the lyric is never break the chain. Mm -hmm. So you have to be fucking careful about that sort of stuff. There are things that I've done before where I've seen the possibility of a superstitious behavior building into things. Ladybug presented a superstitious behavior thing when I was teaching Dancing Bear. Because it was part of her old function in training, she would lay on the ball and start digging on it. And that was a superstitious behavior because previously that was a a behavior that was rewarding on it, but it had nothing to do with the new developed behavior of Dancing Bear. But she thought, while I'm stressed, I'm going to try this out because it's worked for me in the past. And occasionally it would just resurface. Like occasionally I'd give her the command after a period of time, I'd say dancing bear and nine times out of 10, she'd hop on the ball. Like she'd stand on all fours and then she'd stand on two legs and wave in the air every now and then, just for some reason, I'd give her the command and she'd belly flop on the ball and start digging on top of it. Yeah, right. You know, and then I take the ball away from her cause I'd go into negative punishment and then I'd stop reinforcing her. Then I'd wait for her to nag me 
and then she'd come back and put pressure on me to say, I want the food. Mm. And I'd say, all right, well, I'm going to give you a window again. And I put it down and say, dancing bear, she'd go up and do the exercise all over again. Mm. And then get it right, she'd get jackpotted for doing the exercise. As best as I tried, I just couldn't completely extinguish that superstitious behavior. Mm. It would just resurface, you know, like it would probably come out 99 times out of 100 times of doing it, but it was still there. Mm. She did it one day in front of an NDTF group. She actually did that when she could still walk properly. She can walk again, but not properly. But one of the students said to me, is that a bad thing? And I said, it's not a preferable thing. As trainers, we try and have a lineage of excellence in the shaping criteria before we create change to prevent this from happening. But as you've said before, even while the dog is still a veteran of doing that exercise, it can stumble in the exercise and get unwittingly rewarded and thinking, oh, this is a new part of yeah. my, this is, this is a version, you know, like I was doing version one, this is now version 1.1. 1. 1. Mm. This is a new version. I've created a new version and got rewarded for it. And you're all saying, well, no, I don't want to see that again. But occasionally the dog will revisit that behavior in hope that thinking, ah, you know, and then you go, no, no. But the dog goes, what the fuck's going on now? Mm. So our hope our thoughts and prayers are behind, I hope that goes extinct. You know, mm. like I hope that you have enough sense and enough time in the saddle or money in the bank with me to understand that that's not a behavior that I ever want to see mm. or, or want to formulate any form of reinforcement. I don't want it at all. But occasionally, you know, stress creates funny functions in outcomes, not just in dogs, but in people as well. Like behaviors that you just think that is completely arbitrary. Yeah. Like, why are you doing this? This has no formal function. It doesn't give you the reinforcement. I'm trying to explain to you, like I've been through this process with people before. Like, I just think, why the fuck have you got this head full of fuckery where you would do something where you know that it just doesn't lead to a good outcome? Yeah. But yet for some reason, they just feel like I have to do this. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the times with that, certainly in people, it's easier to explain. In, in dogs, it can be a bit more tricky. But but, but it's not because sometimes it, it's completely confounding that the person would still do that behavior knowing full well. Well, I have to ask the question, do they know? Yeah, but well, so it depends on the behavior and why it's happening. Okay. So if I think anyway, let's take, for example, someone that steals from their boss, yep. right? So you're offering them, here's your job. And if you do your work here, you will get paid arbitrary numbers, $100 a week. Yep. Right? You get your payment. And that's all I need from you. But if their motivation to steal from the till has in the past been negative reinforcement driven, right, that is always bubbling away under the surface. Because any behavior that was learned via negative reinforcement it, that is so much more persistent than any behavior that is learned via positive reinforcement because every time that the negative reinforcement doesn't catch up with you, you are reinforced. Mm-hmm. And so those weird things where the dog does something weird, like Ladybug, for example, not saying that you, you wouldn't have taught that via negative reinforcement, but if she does, when you offer, well, there could be two reasons why she's doing what she's doing, right? Where one, if you're saying, hey, if you stand on the ball, it's positive reinforcement. That's a guarantee because you're still in the learning phase. You're not quite at the intermittent schedule where you chain it together and, you know, have a sequence of behaviors. You get to stand on that ball, get to the end point. That's a guarantee of reinforcement. The reason she, I think anyway, that she might lay on it is because she's like, yeah, but maybe laying on it is reinforcement. Mm. Right. And knowing that like reinforcement is not really what I want. The food is not what I want. It's the excitement of finding out. Yep. 
So there's self, that persistent feeling. Yeah. Well, so there's that persistent dopamine spike of mm. I'll try it and find out what happens. And the reason like that could be just because she's enjoys a dopamine spike of it. But imagine you had taught that initially via negative reinforcement, right? Mm. Where like you're, you escape and avoid pressure by being there. Every time she does it in her mind, it's like she's avoiding she has learned to escape and is now avoiding the pressure, even though the pressure was never going to come. Mm. And so that's why you see people who make like really crazy, ridiculous life decisions where you're like, dude, it could have been so good for you here. Like I've, I'm offering you everything. All you had to do was the, the work and I give you the pay, but you stole from the till. And it's because their motivation to steal from the till was in the past driven by negative reinforcement. i got people coming after me, man. Like that's how I learned to steal from the till is that, because- That side I, of it I can understand because I mean, I've, I've been in those situations before, yeah. you know, like working in security where people have been tempted. I, I understand that. Yeah, but so you don't even need the temptation anymore. So if I learn to steal mm. and my motivation to learn to steal was negative reinforcement, right? Like someone's going to break my legs if I don't. Right. And so I need to steal from you in order to stop my legs being broken. And then I do that a couple of times and I go, Hey, that, that was easy. Right? Yeah. It gives and you so, a bit of a rush. And- yeah. But so, well, not just that, but it was, it was something that I learned to do. And my motivation was negative reinforcement. And now I don't even need anybody threatening to break my legs because I go like, Oh, I learned that behavior. And every time I do, I get the, like the same feeling mm. of that rush of avoiding having the threat of having my legs broken. And the, extra cash in my pocket. Exactly. Mm. Right. So that like there's these persistent motivators. That's kind of the issue. I think when we talk about operant conditioning is that like we're so, we think it's so one quadrant at a time and it's absolutely not. Oh no, it's a spinning wheel. Yeah. But it's, it's always like everything's always in play. Like that's one of the things that drives me crazy when people put like competing motivators in a room and they say like, you know, there's a red button and and a green button and the dog avoids the red button and only goes to the green button because like what I watched him hit the green button and get paid. And we're like, okay, from that snapshot, it's fair of us to make an assumption that he's pushing the green button because he gets positive reinforcement. But we don't know what his motivation not to hit the red button was. Like in the past, he could have been punished for that. And that might have been two years ago. And that punishment persists. And so now he's aversive to that. But we can't tell that because that punishment was so long ago. But I think people with operant conditioning as well, they think about it in two immediately, whereby like it affects what will happen in the future, not what just happened, mm-hmm. right? Like I think as well, a lot of, you know, the language we use around operant conditioning when we're explaining to people and when we're, we're talking about it in general, we say the dog sat, so pay him. And that, that doesn't affect that sit. That sit already happened. That's in the past. You can't change that. Mm. Paying him for having sat now will affect whether he'll do it again in the future, right? And I think people, they tie, like operant conditioning gets tied to the current behavior much more than it really should because it, whatever happens post that behavior predicts how it will go again in the future, not what happened right there and then. I think a lot of people, including myself sometimes, you think backwards where you really should be thinking forwards. Well, you've got to think both. Yeah, totally. You have to think forward, backward, and right there. Yeah. So I can bring out a dog and like my red button, green button example again, I can put them down and yesterday I can punish that dog for touching the red button and you don't see it Mm. and now I can put it there and that will affect, now that you're here, the audience is here, everyone's watching, I can call myself this force-free trainer and I can go, look, I can totally, look how effective a shape I am, I can make him touch the green button so effectively 
And yeah, right there and then I'm using positive reinforcement to make him touch the green button. But the reason that's going to be so easy for me to do is because of yesterday when I punished him for touching the red button, which means that today's session, touching the red button is less likely to happen, mm. right? And I think that's kind of like people it's think modeling. of- we're, we're modeling effectively. Like yeah. we're, we're utilizing futures, past and present. And yeah. once you stop the struggle- of being involved in any type of training. doesn't matter what you're doing. But once you stop the struggle of being involved in worrying too much about history, worrying too much about futures, and then concerned about what's happening right there, you've got to look at it as everything ebbs and flows and everything is connected. Yeah. You know, like I recently had an epiphany about it, how everything is connected. I mean, I've literally spent the last week thinking about that. From what I'm seeing, it truly is. Everything truly is connected. And the less you struggle with that, the more you feel like I feel like I have more momentum and more control about what I'm actually doing yeah. rather than being agonizing over, fuck, I've missed seconds off that, or this could possibly branch into four or five different things rather than just being at peace with it and saying, well, let's see what happens. Mm. You know, the modeling that I'm doing now, the prediction that I have and based on my history, this should go in this direction. Mm. And there is a possibility that it could go there, but I'm ready for it. Mm. You know, like if it does do that, I'm ready for it based on what I'm doing right now. Yeah. That's a good place to be in. Well, that makes me think about something I was explaining to someone the other day, like the difference between an aversive stim, for example, just use a stimulus, not necessarily electric collar, but just an aversive stimulus versus a punishment because an aversive stimulus will stop what's happening now, mm. but it isn't always punishing. In fact, it can be reinforcing in that it makes it more likely to happen again. So in some instances, especially say dog aggression, for example, that kind of stuff where the dog really is afraid for its life, right? Now, by using a a punishment right there and there that like what people would perceive as a punishment, right? Like some sort of aversive, I can stop the behavior happening now because the dog thinks like, fuck, that was horrendous. I can't continue. But also then that doesn't necessarily mean that he's less likely to do it tomorrow, it may, in some instances, make him more likely to do it tomorrow and make him go like harder, go earlier. By the textbook definition of reinforcement, it could increase the frequency and likelihood of the behavior. Mm. By applying an a, a aversive stim today could stop the behavior from happening right now, but make it way more likely to happen tomorrow. That's totally possible. And that's why we talk about like creating a punishment event and having the future in mind. I think one of the issues with people that you know use punishment and why so many people are averse to it, and, and I get this, is because people, like some people's perception of it is like, I'll get retribution upon you now for the thing that you did wrong and make you less likely to do it. And that can work, but it's usually pretty unskilled and, you know, a bit- uh, And a little dark. Draconian, right? Mm-hmm. Like, whereas- Punishment is where I go, hey, I need to stop you right now. And I may use an aversive stim. Whatever it takes, I'm going to stop the progression of the behavior. You're not going to be allowed to continue doing what you're doing. I can't allow that to happen because this behavior is dangerous or whatever. Mm. But then the punishment has to make sure that be what follows it and makes it not likely to happen again, right? And I think that yeah, in a lot of instances, especially take, for example, and this was the example I was talking about when I was explain this to someone was the dog kind of counter surfing and people just kind of like smacking the dog. Like they're sitting here and the dog's trying to eat their food and they just give it like a little nudge away. 
And yeah, like that's stopping the dog being able to get to the food, right? But you've created a game to the dog of like, can I beat your hand? And so that's not punishment. That is the dog is going to try harder mm. to get at that. Now you create an aversive experience right there. You might've got the dog a good one and, and, and the dog goes, oh fuck that. It's not worth the hassle today. But tomorrow he'll be like, I want to play that game again of me trying to get your food off the table and you trying to block it from me. And so our aversive experience was not necessarily making the the problem behavior less likely to happen. And I think that's got to be when you're thinking about, okay, which quadrant am I using here and which ones are at play? It's futures focused, mm. right? You got to know what happened in the past, but then be future focused. Okay. How do I make that happen again? Because I liked it right now, luring and all that kind of stuff. Like that's not positive reinforcement. That's some way of bringing on the behavior. That's molding and all the other bullshit terms that we can come up with. Right. Mm. But positive reinforcement is whether it's going to happen again, not making it happen now, right? Making it happen now is not the effect of positive re reinforcement. That's whether it's going to happen again. And the same with punishment. Stopping it happening now is not necessarily punishment. It's whether it's likely to happen again. And as trainers, that's our job, right? Is to be future focused rather than past focused or current focused. We just use the combination of all of it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The whole picture has to come the together. The whole picture has to come together. It's funny, you know, like I've been listening to you talking for the last 15 minutes and thinking we're trying to simplify this in our discussion <laughs> and this just went down a whole rabbit hole and I'm I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, for the people who are starting out in the industry, if you're following along with now top marks, like, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very complicated and I feel a very accurate way of thinking about it. Like, and this is one of the things because we were just talking about whether you would use tools or not mm. and like from my point of view – Negative punishment is so fucking effective, but it's really hard to be an aversive in the moment. So like the types of punishment that I would usually use is almost always hands off, right? Yep. Like I can create a very aversive experience to the dog as a force free trainer. But that's the thing, right? Is that for people who are trying to avoid using punishment in training, you just can't. Yeah. When you're really sort of circling the drain of, of thinking about using punishment or not, there is just no way of avoiding it. I get it. You know, people are trying to use that least invasive method of training and they really want to minimize their impact or their footprint on what they're actually doing with their dog at the time. But when you do break it down, when you actually sit there and analyze the situation, it's what the species thinks and feels. Yeah. Like I've seen this in human behavior before. Like I've tried to explain to people, even the people that I work for, you know, like they'll say to me, for example, offer this person a promotion. They don't fucking want it. Yeah. Offering them a promotion, everybody thinks, and this is where people do all the thinking for the dogs, it's wrong, man, because you're not really in the moment of it. And that's where you're losing sight of everything's mm. connected because you're fucking wrong. You miss the point. And I've had open debates with the people that I've been working for, and I said they don't want the promotion. That's the worst thing you could do for mm. them. But they're thinking that's the best thing I could do for them. Mm. And I've seen dog trainers who are good people and, you know, like, and they're working in the realms of being a positive trainer. They think they're doing the best thing for the dog. They miss the point. They're not present in the moment. And that's where futures and pasts and everything colliding. 
Like this is where they're missing the point. They're thinking about themselves. Mm. They're not placing themselves in the a- aspect of the species that they're in. Yeah. And sometimes that takes some critical thinking and some analysis of where you are right now and who you're dealing with. Because, mate, I've made this mistake. I've had staff leave over things like this where we all think we're giving you the opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah. More pay, more responsibility, and that's not what they wanted. That goes back to that episode I was talking about on The Good Doctor where the female doctor said, I didn't want this. Yeah. I did this to escape the pressure that you are all putting on me, but I never wanted it. I wanted a simplified lifestyle. None of you saw that and none of you gave me any peace. You all kept pushing me to go better and bigger all the time and you made my situation worse. Mm. As dog trainers, we've got to think about this sort of situation sometimes when we're thinking about am I in the right headspace for the type of training I'm doing right here, right now. I know we're talking about some very difficult and conceptualized concepts, but you have to think about it in order to get this right. To finish on what I was saying there about punishment, negative punishment is often super effective, like very, very effective. And and it's totally hands off and I don't need any tools to do it. And it's a very effective thing. You're giving the, for the right kind of dog, getting a timeout can be the most aversive thing you can think of. Mm. And therefore he won't, you know, do whatever predicted it before. But the problem kind of is that it can be hard to stop the behavior that you want to punish because after that behavior, you can then go, well, here is what I think should act as a punisher. But if the dog is allowed to complete that behavior, the punishment has to be much more hefty rather than if you are able to aversively stop the behavior from progressing because anything the dog is doing, he's doing because he wants to. So let me give you like a real world practical example. I've got a, a, a dog reactive dog, right? And he's a bully and he wants to push around other dogs and you're know, a thug or whatever. And so I'm training and another dog comes past and my dog cooks off at it. I can punish the shit out of that by just restraining my dog mm. and wait till that other dog goes. And because we were training, now the dog looks back to me and says, hey, it's time to train again. And I can go, no, time out. Like I'm going to make you... I'm not giving you the training. I can put you away in the box. I can leave you isolated here. I turn my back to you. I can do all these kinds of things. And that would be punishing to the dog, Mm. except that he just did a behavior that was highly reinforced because he got to push around that other dog and be the thug to that other dog, right? So now I've got to look at the, the scales that I look at and go, well, he the behavior of bark, lunge, growl was reinforced on a really high scale because he did push that other dog away. He got what he wanted by, you know, affecting the behavior of the other dog. He has been reinforced and that reinforcement was in that dog's mind an eight out of 10. It was like almost one of the best things he could imagine. He, he controlled another dog. So in order to punish him for that, the punishment I'm going to have to use is has to be a nine out of 10, right? Because I have to have him look at that situation and go, if I do that, I will enjoy it mm. in the moment, but post that, I will. it will lead to a consequence I don't want to endure, so I'll avoid that consequence by not doing the behavior. But the problem is, that's hard numbers to play with. Whereas if my dog starts bark, lunge, growling at another dog, and I'm able to interrupt that behavior via an aversive stim when he's at like a three out of 10 of how much he can enjoy the reinforcement that's going to come from that, if I can nip that early and get it when it's a three out of 10 now for my punishment to be effective. And I can still hundred percent use negative punishment at this point. Mm. My punishment now only has to be a four out of 10. So 
It's not as simple as people sometimes want you to believe that using the tools is bad and negative punishment is bullshit. Does Like it's very complex when you put it all together and it's, you're playing every dog is an individual. And that's kind of the issue. Like to say that method doesn't work to isolate one piece of it. A lot of people, because as balance trainers, we hear it all the time. Oh, what are you going to do? Give the dog time out. And I'm like, yeah, because that's the most horrific thing. I'm going to cry while I do it because I hate being that brutal to my dog mm. because stopping the session is the most horrific thing that he can imagine, right? Because it can be super effective. Absolutely. But it has a limit of how effective it is because of the effectiveness or the reinforcing nature of the behavior that I'm trying to punish, right? Mm. Whereas if I then go like, okay, positive punishment at the front end to stop the behavior or an aversive stim, let's call it that rather than positive punishment, something that the dog goes off, fuck, the cost is too high. I'm not paying that. And then I say afterwards, and here's your negative punishment. Like now I'm going to leave you here and and here's your time out. That's a very aversive experience overall for the dog, but it can be less than I would have to do if I'd let the dog complete the behavior prior. Mm. Right. Those are the things that as a balance trainer, a person that's willing, you know, I, I don't limit myself beyond being effective and kind to the dog. They're the key words, right? Effective and kind. Yeah. Mm. And so those are the things that I have to consider when I look at it and I go, how do I serve you best, man? Like, yep. how do I communicate to you what I do and don't want you to do? And maybe with some dogs, that's totally hands off. And, and I know the methods and techniques for doing that. And maybe with some dogs, that's, I have to get, I have to use a tool. So I have to get involved with you because that's what's going to be effective for you in this moment. Mm. There's no right or wrong. It's just like, you got to read every individual dog and make a, an individual decision. Listening to you just speaking on that, I know we're going to wind up soon, but listening to you just speaking on that, I did a consult with somebody the other day online and it wasn't about dog aggression because I usually try and limit the amount of dog aggression. But unfortunately, due to COVID, I have to help some people. Aggressive dogs is through the roof. Yeah, that's right. And I've had to help people. A lot of the actual consults I've been working on is fundamentally aggression. And one of the ones that I was working on, it was a negative punishment issue that created the aggression in the dog because- Mm the client was working with another trainer who said, when your dog is doing this, give your dog times out. The dog realized that this was what's happening and then turned on the owner. Mm. They didn't understand what was going on. They're just a, a dog owner. Their job is to employ somebody like us to, to get to the grassroots of this. And I could quickly see what was going on. I said, you've got to counter condition this man straight away. Like mm. the dog knows when it's getting led into this environment that negative punishment is taking place. I did an explanation of what it is. I told him how psychologically destructive that can be because it's basically like this is solitary confinement. This is what's happening with the dog and the dog has jerried onto it because this is your your way of dealing with the problem all the time. The dog's basically going, no, I don't want to go here. Mm. I said, I bet you he's tried to jump on you. He said, yeah, he has. He's jumped on me and scratched me and then the other day he bit me for the first time. And I said, has the dog ever put teeth on you before? He said, no, not for any other reason. And I said, so you didn't forcefully grab him? You didn't pull him by the ear or anything? He said, no, I had him on a collar and a lead and I was simply leading him there. He was backing off and I I, I pulled him and he said he growled at me and I pushed through it and the dog bit me. That's because the environment now is toxic to the dog Mm. and he's doing everything he can to avoid going there. And I said, do you understand what's happening? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, no, no, no. He's doing, he's looking for the behavior to escape 
Yeah, yeah. There. It was even negative reinforcement that's taking the, place there as well. That's the issue. And that's the problem is because the dog got to work through the other side of yeah. that. And that we had to go into that explanation as well without frying his brain because this is a person who doesn't understand the quadrant. Yeah. So we had to go through real life examples of what happened with his dog psychologically and how it picked off into that moment where the dog finally turned and put teeth on him. Mm. So we had to create an environment where and this is still ongoing, it's successful at the moment, but we had to create an environment where we counter condition the whole behavior and turn that into an aversive environment into a petitive environment by rewarding the dog and shaping the dog's behavior and getting closer and closer to it without restricting the dog, like getting the dog to willfully go into the environment. Mm. So this is happening. It's more successful. The owner is happy with what's happening, but it's taken three or four times of us to talk about it, to actually get into the meat of what's going on. And I said, I'm not trying to make you linger here. And he goes, no, no, I need this. Like I need to understand what I've done Mm. because this has happened through the advice of somebody else. Not that they had the intent for this to happen. He said, I blame myself for my limitations and understanding of what's going on here but I need to fix it now because my wife is scared. She wants me to get rid of the dog. I don't want to. That puts us in a state of conflict and I don't want this to occur. So negative punishment and combined with with negative reinforcement, I mean, my God, what a diabolical situation this can turn into. Well, I mean, that's the issue. And much of this really complex stuff on punishment, Ivan's course is really, the module on punishment is really good. It's really fucking good. He would not agree with some of the stuff I've said about low-level electrics, but the punishment stuff that he has on that course is really, really good. But the big issue there is, and I've been saying this for years, I truly think dogs don't interpret things as punishment very much when they're, especially when they're sort of dealing with each other. More often than not, it's negative reinforcement because they want something specific. And the difference, you know, between any kind of pressure, whether it's being put away or, you know, like a physical pressure, whatever, is that if there's a way to escape it, that's negative, to escape re- the pressure. Right. that's negative reinforcement. Yep. And if there's no way to escape it, only avoid it, that's punishment. And yep. so, you know, like that dog, he's like, there's got to be a way out of this. And he found it, right? He's like, oh, I can escape being put away by biting you. And he hasn't then gone, oh, I can avoid being put away by not displaying the behaviors that lead to that. But it led to that from negative punishment. Like negative yeah. punishment was the catalyst that led to that. Yeah, but the dog never saw it that way. Right, the dog always saw it like it, on that trip back to the the crate where he's going to get put away. The dog's thinking, "This is ne-, like not that he's making these thoughts, but he's this is I can get out of this." Well, nothing right? worked until he bit him. Like that's the, right, the jumping and on him, scratched him, everything. Like he had to escalate it to and then get it, to the point, and then it did. Mm. So now the and dog, then it did, and then and then it will get so much worse. Lucky the guy's calling you, right? Because mm. that dog is then going to be like, "Oh, I, I can." avoid it altogether. I've mm. learned how to escape it. I can avoid you being putting me away by just nailing you anytime you show me. Oh, any he still threw him in the box after he bit him. Yeah. Like right. he still pushed through it. Like the dog bit him and then he grabbed the dog and threw him in. So yeah, that the part of the, that part of the story is still missing from yeah. the, the explanation. So but the problem is that it also created a delay in getting the dog in there yeah. as well. So everything escalated. And that's why I said, yeah, I wish we had this conversation when he was jumping on you and pushing you because unfortunately that's a thought in the dog's head now. Like I'm glad you pushed through it, but I'm not glad it happened to you because there's still a degree of complication in there. Yeah. I really enjoy watching Remy and Valerie just be with each other. The way they interact with each other is it's so fascinating to me. They have such a complex love of each other. Mm. They really truly love each other. You can see it, but also Remy annoys the shit out of Valerie. (laughs) (laughs) Like he annoys her so much and she has such a short fuse for it sometimes. He annoys her and she will put some pressure on him, right? She'll like nip at him and really push him away. 
it's never to stop the behavior. She pushes him back to his bed mm. and will pursue him till he's like on the bed and lays down and she keeps that pressure on until he gets there. That's negative reinforcement. Mm. A lot of people go, oh, that's a correction. She's punishing him, whatever. Nope. 100%, nope. She wants something specific from him, right? Stopping isn't enough. I want you to be there and you have to fucking stay there. It's like watching watching them together sometimes. But what's it to Remy? Well, I think it's the same. Well, he enjoys, I think it's reinforcement, to be honest. He enjoys that, the, that's, the game of that's it. That's kind of, it's not the issue, but that's kind of the quandary, I'll call it, yeah. where we think. Yeah. That's, oh, totally. But that's I mean, the hard part is like the human interpretation. And sometimes we're so close to the problem that we overskip the mark of our thinking about it. Yeah. And I've certainly been guilty of that. And it's not until someone like you or somebody else steps in the picture and goes, man, you're too close to the problem. Like you've got this wonderful like you do, you have these wonderful um, stories in your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for all intensive purposes, you could be absolutely on the money. Yeah, there's because, no way to know. But there's no absolute no way yeah. to know. That's the hard part. I mean, I think that the best thing that we can do is try and be as analytical and non-judgmental as we possibly can to yeah. come up with the right terminology based on our experience at the time. Yeah. And then you can sort of conclude that I think I'm as close to it as I'm going to get because as you and I've said in past episodes, until we get those little modules that interpret the dog's brain and we think, oh, you're thinking this and the app goes, no, fuck weird. I'm thinking this. Yeah. Like I'm looking at the cake, not you. And you you think I'm, you know, like yeah, I'm yeah. smiling at you. Yeah. It's funny, but it, that I think that adds to our dopamine cycle that those, you know, like never getting truly to the end of it and still being in part of the puzzle. We, yeah. You're kind of thinking I'm getting closer and closer to solving the puzzle, but just as I believe that I'm at the edge of the puzzle, somebody's put down another big mat of it and thinking, ah, yeah. oh, fuck, there's more. But that's exciting. But but here's what's funny. So, like, in that circumstance, she can chase him. Like, he's got that blue couch. That's his bed. He's the only one that uses it. She lays on it sometimes just to dominate him, but, like, it's his space. And he'll piss her off, and she chases him back to there, and he, it's like it's his bar, like he's safe, yeah. right? Like, I'm safe on this bed. And she then – and it, it kind of – the first time I watched them do this – it reminded me of like when you see some shitty compulsive trainer teaching place training, mm. like it fully, like he was under a shit ton of pressure until he got to there and then he would go to get off and she'd chase him back on and it'd be pressure back on until he got onto there and she's like staring at him and then, but the difference is he thinks it's fucking hilarious, right? Like, because there's no real threat. Like if he wanted to, he could kill her, right? Like he could just yeah. bite her. He could just bite her in half. It'd be nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. But the game of negative reinforcement was what they were playing, right? Where she's like, I'll bite you. And she nips his neck. You know, she does these like little like chasing nips. You've seen her do it, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. She does that shit to him. And he, all the body language of a dog that is having the time of his life, <laughs> <laughs> but is being forced to be on his bed. Yeah. And he clearly thinks it's hilarious and like respects that negative reinforcement from her but pushes the boundaries of it and is clearly playing the game mm. of I'm going to push your buttons until you force me to do this and then I'm going to try and escape and avoid it. Like it's a, <laughs> it's it's complex to watch. But like I say, mo a lot of people look at that and say like punishment. And I'm like, that's not what I see. I see negative reinforcement. Yep. Um, anyway, it's fun to think about. And that's where we're going to leave it. That's it. For another episode of the Canine Paradigm, uh, as always, if you like what you hear, as always, we didn't get to Liam Webb's topic. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Liam. Maybe next time, mate. Eat a bag of dicks, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> as always.
always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is jump into Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Can't stop laughing about Liam. <laughs> jump into Patreon. A few bucks a month in there really helps support the show, and there's a shit ton of content in there and then and more to come. I am filming the PSA Nationals. That's going to be a, an awesome thing. I'm the Like the IGP thing that I made, I'm making one on PSA. I'm making a shit ton of content. You wouldn't believe the shit that I've got going on now that I can travel again. So bear with me. That's coming. Another cool way to support the show is to just rep our merch, man. Get some sweet teas. We've got some tech that we need to buy to expand our ability mm-hmm. to do some filming. I'm bashful to say that it's it's pricey. So please, Patreon people, please help us. Yeah. Don't be shy. Daddy needs a new. Daddy needs a new pair of shoes. <laughs> Daddy <laughs> needs a new camera. Yep. Whatever I'm out to. Teespring. Buy some cool merch. Mm. I mean, it looks rad. Yep. I mean, it supports us. That's awesome. But you look amazing. Yeah. You've got some really cool artworks by some really cool people. Well, Andrew, we need Zoe. the we need the new logo that we've had. Bite Sports Curious. Ah, uh, yeah. Bite Sports Curious. Yeah. yeah we, we need we, we need a, we need a competition for any artists that are out there on our uh, Facebook discussion group. If you want to put some art forward. For our Bite Sports Curious, that's going to be our new... Yeah, that'll be a T-shirt. Pat Pat said that a while ago in an episode, and a few people sent me a private message saying, that was really funny, and I said, it was. It made me laugh as well. Yeah, Bite Sports Curious. Bite Sports Curious. Well, let me tell you, for those of you who are Bite Sports Curious, I've got some fucking content coming your way. Wonderful. I think you're going to enjoy it. Excellent. Get in contact with us. Join the Facebook group. Mm. That's where the cool things happen in there. Yep. A few thousand people in there just... Being friendly to each other, giving each other sweet advice and yep. laughing at memes together and so forth. And we might not be talking in there all the time, but we're certainly reading and yeah. watching what's going on. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can shoot us an email. We are info at the Goodbye. <laughs>